Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Cameron's podcast, Pubs, Pints, People. I'm Alison Taffs. I'm Claire Phillips. And I'm Simon Webster. So were you both doing dry January last month? It seems it seems January was a very long month. I, I can only imagine not drinking any al- alcohol would have made it even longer. But uh, I, I did have a, quite a few more zero or low beers. What, what about you guys? I'm afraid I'm, I'm constitutionally against dry January, mainly because it means some people feel that they don't come to the pub, uh, which is, I think, a bad thing. In these dark, uh, cold days and long nights, I think it's even more important that people come and hang out with the friends. I totally understand they might want to cut down or reduce their drinking. We've got plenty of no alcohol drinks that they can come hang out with their friends and enjoy. So for me, the important thing is keep coming to the pub, keep socialising, keep talking uh, and don't let uh, your dry January stop you from doing that. What about you Simon were you were you dry, dry January? Yeah for me it was a blend of dry January so trying some new regular strength beers but also I was doing a little bit of dry January really by doing some research and learning more about knowing low alcohol beers and trying more of those than I've ever tried before so looking forward to sharing some of that newly acquired knowledge during this episode of the podcast. And also the point that's, that uh, Alison made about still going to the pub. I wrote an article about dry January in a town near me and the whole focus of it was talking about the various different pubs and bars and all the low and no offerings that, that they have to encourage people back into those pubs. And we'll talk more about pubs later on in, in the episode as well. We will indeed. Now, the focus of this episode, as you'll have gathered, is around no and low alcohol beers and, and ciders. And uh, dry January can bring some quite strong opinions both for and against. But as the no and low alcohol market continues to grow, that's what we're going to be looking at in this episode. Now, I've been speaking to Stuart Elkington from a specialist retailer called drydrinker.com. And we'll hear why there isn't a category for the zero alcohol beers at the Champion Beer of Britain from the competition's head judge, no less. And also we'll hear from the owner of a no alcohol brewery who hopes that advances in the brewing methods will mean that one day there could be. I've been speaking to Jordan from standout premium low-no brewer Mashgang. And, of course, I've been exploring low-and-no cider too. We discuss the history and practice of making low-alcohol ciderkin with a historian and a cider maker. Now, to make alcohol-free beer, brewers usually either remove the alcohol from the beer or they restrict alcohol formation while it's fermenting. In fact, there are four major methods. Controlled fermentation, dealcoholization dilution or simulated fermentation 
And I would just like to say, try saying those four words after a few regular strength beers. <laughs> well, in all four cases, brewers use standard beer ingredients to maintain that familiar beer taste without the alcohol. Along with the beer recipe, these various approaches determine what the brew will look, smell and, of course, taste like. In practice, the most common methods are arrested fermentation, where the water is stopped from fully fermenting, and the others, dealcoholization. This is removing the alcohol, either using filtering, reverse osmosis, or sometimes vacuum distillation. One thing that's very interesting is how we define non-alcoholic drinks. Now, government guidelines are quite specific on these definitions, aren't they, Claire? Yes, they certainly are. According to the guidelines, there are two notable categories. There's alcohol-free. Many, although not all, producers follow government guidance that says alcohol-free drinks can be up to 0.05% ABV. And in practice, you might see alcohol-free drinks that are up to 0.5% ABV for sale. Low alcohol, now the guidance on this is that low alcohol drinks can be up to 1.2% ABV. But I gather that the government are actually reviewing this at the moment, and that could include 0.5% beers as well. Now, that's a confusing range of numbers we've just throwing, been throwing around, but a, a lot of the beers that I see seem to sit at around 0.5% of alcohol on the packaging. So uh, I'm not sure if these are no or low alcohol, really. I don't think that I'm alone in feeling that way. Yeah, that's for sure, Simon. In actual fact, non-alcoholic beers and ciders aren't the only things that contain small amounts of alcohol. You may be surprised to know that many foods and drinks contain traces of alcohol, including things like very ripe bananas, bread, fruit juices and yogurts. In fact, some breads like rye bread contain quite a lot more than 0.5%. And keep in mind that it's highly unlikely you'll get a buzz from a non-alcoholic beer with 0.5% ABV. That's because your body can metabolise that tiny amount of alcohol about as fast as you consume it, roughly within 17 minutes. Let's start by putting our money where our mouth is, or should that be our zero-alcohol beer where our mouth is? As towards the end of January, Alice and I had a tasting session of a variety of beers that are available in both can and bottle. We're starting out with a lager, with the lightest beer, and this is from Wiper and True. They're up in Bristol, uh, and it absolutely looks like a regular uh, one of their cans with a little blue uh, sun on. I guess the idea is tomorrow you can wake up with a, a nice clear head because you're drinking this uh, 0.5 lager. So looks like a lager. Nice looks sort of great in the creamy glass, head, nice head to it. On the nose, delicate, delicate lagery, kind of hoppy character which definitely say. has the appearance and smell of a lager mm-hmm. now let's dive into the taste now it's very light bodied as you would expect but it does have a refreshing crisp bite from the hops that they've used i would agree with you on that the finish is a little short i think it's a little shorter than a regular lager that you would have um, but it definitely has a crispness and it has a bite i'm getting hops from it a reasonable amount of body to it as well it's has the appearance and, and to some degree the taste of a regular lager that you would expect to have in the pub. I think that's pretty good. That's very successful. That's a good start to the yeah, tasting. Yeah, and a good good brewery with a good start. So this is the On Beer. It describes itself as an IPA um, and, and it's one's in a bottle, slightly different packaging, sort of gold on white. So it's really kind of marketing himself in a slightly different way, talking about powerful botanicals. Colour-wise, it's very pale, uh, sort of quite a fast fermentation, tiny bubbles. On the nose. Different nose. You can mm. really, I was going to say, bready. Yeah, earthy and bready, I would say. Oh, yeah, okay. That is a very unusual tasting beer. It does have that earthiness. I'm getting quite a, a sort of hoppy character, but it does have a very short finish. 
it does. I'm, I am influenced by what I see on the label where it talks about botanicals. It just has something that's a little bit distinct, a little bit different. And I think you can see from the from the branding and the, and the marketing that it's positioning itself in a slightly different place within the market. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's quite pleasant. And, and we're just going to open your third one here from Howling Hops in Hackney. And I'm being cautious because quite often we find with these uh, no low alcohol beers they can be a bit lively and when you open them they can sometimes um try and shoot out and uh, we've had that a couple of times so this one is oh this is quite different this is a hazy style we've got here this isn't is it? remarkably hazy yeah. yes so this is a classic sort of hoppy hazy uh sort of howling hops uh, kind of modern style terrific nose as well gosh yeah so really funky um heavy on the um the hops plenty of bitterness Absolutely. In fact, that's that's pretty bitter, that, I would say. And for this style, I wouldn't expect that amount of bitterness. I'd no, expect by far the most bitters I've tasted mm. in a no or low alcohol beer so far. It does have body and it, it's got some length, but the length I'm getting is mainly from that bitterness from the hops. I'm not getting a tremendous amount of fruitiness. And that's what I would expect with this style. If I was drinking a sort of New England IPA Definitely. or a, a hoppy Definitely. style, I'd expect a bit more fruit from the from the hop. And we're not sort of getting that so much, are we? But for sure, it's got weight uh, and it's got that bitter sort of lift on the finish. So moving on, uh, I've bought along with me uh, three beers. Now, the first of these is from the Bristol Beer Factory, obviously based in Bristol, like Wiper and True. And this is their clear head. Uh, this is another 0.5 beer. And this is a pale ale that's been made with mosaic and citra. Some of the takings from this particular beer go to mental health charities. So uh, it's definitely uh, thinking and uh, quite thoughtful. Now, this one I brought along because it's one that we're having a lot of success with serving at the Hop-In and people very much enjoy it. It's sort of a bright yellow can with a clear head. It definitely sort of markets itself as a, as a, as a no-alcohol beer, but in that sort of craft appearance. Visually pale, ever so slight haze on it and quite a big head Again. from the carbonation. On the nose, you've got the, um, the sort of hoppy character, but it's a little more peachy in style, I would say. And character-wise, it really does have quite a nice body to it. It's got a good length. What do you think, Simon? Really quite different to the, the pale ale we've just had from, from uh, Howling Hops. Yeah. The hops definitely come more to the fore, looking at the can, the mosaic and citra, and you, you, you definitely sense, sense the hops. Uh, the bitterness has been dialed back compared to yes, the, the pale ale that we had, one, yeah. uh, with, with a, you know, a reasonable body to that, certainly. Yeah, I, I think that works very, very well, and um, very tasty. Now, the last two beers we have, uh, these were a gift from Harvey's Brewery. We're going to be hearing... A little bit about how these are made uh, from Miles Jenner, the head brewer himself. First of all, for Simon, I'm pouring here the 0.5 Sussex Best. So the classic Harvey's Sussex Best Bitter. And this one has had the alcohol removed. And colour-wise, it's definitely a little lighter than the regular Best that I would expect to see. So it's got a sort of paler amber rather than a dark amber. And again, a good head. It's amber, but it's quite clear as well. Quite bright, isn't it? Pin bright, actually. On the nose malt forward absolutely it is different it, it does have that fruity character though that you expect with harvey's that that characteristic harvey's fruity bready yeast it definitely has that aroma albeit it is definitely different from the regular uh, alcoholized best would that come from the yeast they used mm. to brew this mm. that will be the harvey's house yeast giving it that really characteristic um, aroma it is lighter for sure on the palate it's very easy drinking very soft to drink but you know what? It, I like its balance of fruit and bitterness. 
to to me it's um, more fruity than I would have expected, mm. certainly compared to the the regular Sussex best. Yeah, and then finally, uh, again another gift from Harvey's. Their old ale. So this is quite unusual to come across a no alcohol beer that's actually a dark. Uh, beer that isn't a stout because we get quite a few uh, no alcohol stouts around but this is a brown beer uh, so the classic old ale uh, but this dealcoholized to not more than 0.5 a proper dark oh, sort looks, of chocolate looks brown lovely in the <laughs> chocolate it brown with a tan head with a good tan head on it and then on the nose yeah the malt is there definitely it's malt forward in aroma so you get that nice sort of malt fruity kind of character Mm. Definitely more body to that one. Yeah, very smooth, very rich across the tongue, lots of silkiness, a sort of chocolatey note to the malt on the palate. Again, it definitely is a little shorter than the regular old ale, but it, it offers something, I think, this one. Mm. Smooth and soft and gentle, but definitely you get all of that malt and fruit from the, from the, from the way this has been made. Previously, for me, I've usually only drunk one no or low alcohol beer on an evening. Um, so for me, it was really interesting to rattle through a few different beers and in particular different styles. Um, as we did it, though, we were pondering which method the brewer had used to produce these very low or no alcohol beers. With some, we just don't know. They don't tell us. Um, but some we do. Um, for example, Adnam's Ghost Ship, that 0.5 version, they're using reverse osmosis to take the alcohol out. And we know that those Harvey's ales we tried in the tasting use a method also called reverse osmosis. Now, I had a chance to visit Harvey's Brewery and meet Miles Jenner, the head brewer, recently while I was recording some interviews for our forthcoming episodes. And while I was there, I saw the equipment he's using for the low alcohol beers and I asked him about them. We've been producing a, a low alcohol beer since 1988. So we were quite early on in the, in the, the day. We, we use a reverse osmosis process and basically what you're doing is taking the alcohol out of uh, the finished product and we do so with a semi-permeable membrane uh, but basically the beer is forced across that water and alcohol pass through the membrane and go to the drain and the liquid goes back to the tank that is uh, left and is kept in equilibrium by water being added that we've previously softened prior to running the plant. So basically you've got five barrels of beer in a, in a batch and you need three times that amount of water to flush 4% alcohol out and bring it down to less than half a percent. And we, we, we can run down quite often 0.2% on our, our beer. So you're literally just filtering out the particles of the alcohol. Alcohol, uh, water and CO2 flow out and water goes back in, basically. Yeah. But you're keeping all the other flavour compounds. Keeping all those larger molecules, flavour compounds, yeah. The Sussex Bitter we do on that. And we also uh, produce the old ale, low alcohol old ale. I think we were the first brewery to actually do a, a, a brown ale yes. as a low alcohol. And what made you choose? I mean, obviously, the, the Sussex Best, you know, flagship, but what made you choose the old ale? Oh, just that we wanted to do a, a low alcohol brown ale, and, and you want a beer that's got a reasonable strength to it mm. to, to, to retain that character. And the old was something that was, you know, constantly in production, and it seemed a good way of doing it. 
I do like a drop of old ale. I particularly like the sound of a zero one, so I'll definitely have to look out for the one from Harvey's. And, and actually, it would be great to hear about the no and low beers that we might not have been able to mention, perhaps some regional ones that, that haven't made it onto our radar yet. So if you've got a favourite, do get in touch with us. You can find us on social media if you search for pubs, pints, people, and let us know your favourites as well. Later on, I'll be sampling some of the low and no alcohol ciders in bottle and can with Sam Wright from the London Cider Circle. Before that, let's hear from some of the brewers. Now, we talked about brewing to low alcohol levels, and one of the leading producers of no-low beers that I've been enjoying over the last couple of years uses this method. They are Mashgang. They have been receiving plenty of plaudits for their work from beer writers and fans. I was impressed all over again when I worked alongside them on the Learning and Discovery Bar at last year's Great British Beer Festival. I spoke to Jordan. Now, he's the head brewer across much of their global business. Basically, if it's in the can or on the can, I probably had my hand in it. I've only actually been brewing professionally since March 2020. And before that, my only experience in brewing was homebrew kits like Woodford's Wherry and uh, like all the old Munton's kits and stuff, which is fun because I work with those guys now. And then I went through a, uh, a devastating turbo cider phase around 18 or 19 that I was making and selling to people. Um, and <laughs> all right. So for those people who haven't had oh. a go at this, uh, give us a very brief overview of what turbo cider turbo is. Cider. So turbo cider is when you, you go to like Tesco Value, Aldi, Lidl and buy as much <laughs> apple juice as you can get for as cheap as possible. They were really cheap sometimes. You could get it for down as low as 10p a litre. You put it in a fermenter bucket, you'd add sugar and then a fast yeast. Now, as time went on, I took quite a lot of care in the tur- <laughs> I became a turbo cider aficionado and I was using like champagne yeasts from White Labs. Wow. I'm, I'm always someone that's like messing with stuff. It's not enough to just do it once and uh, repeat it. it. It's, you know, I, I, I was using all sorts of adjuncts and stuff like that, but... But it was real head crack. It's more like apple wine, isn't it, than cider? Because it really, it, it goes really, really dry. But I had some success with um, making sparkling versions of it as well. And then some failures where bottles would just explode. In my, I had to do it all my grands uh, in shed because my parents found out I'd be in trouble. But there was pr- plenty of <laughs> bottle bombs going off there. But that, that was my experience <laughs> of brewing as it was. Wonderful. Well, it led you on. So tell us how you went from that to Mashgang. I, for a lot of people, COVID and lockdown was was an incredibly negative thing. And, and I, I lost my business during it. But it gave me for the first time in years, trying to see a silver lining, the first time in years, a time off work where I really was off work. I'd spent almost a decade being self-employed with staff reporting to me and you know even when you're on holiday or have a day off people would inevitably need something so it was the first time I had and I went through so many different things like many people did in the first few weeks baking bread trying to make cheese and stuff like that but the one thing that stuck with me was was brewing and it was the first time in a very long time that I could dedicate to something that would take time to do and that's how I started brewing and I think if anyone is listening to this as a, uh, and is a home brewer, they'll probably agree that it's about as close to alchemy as you can get. You put some pretty basic ingredients in, some cereal, some water, some yeast, and some flowers, and then magic comes out the other end, and it's beer. And once you start doing that, I think it's quite hard to stop. 
what led you to making these amazingly flavoursome beers that also happen to be low or no have no alcohol? Oh man, I, I couldn't phrase that, but that's how I like to position us. Really, um, it was it was the challenge of it. It was easy enough doing certain things, but. At that particular time, a lot of friends of mine were kind of moderating what they... They went through the Wild West stage of lockdown, where it's like, uh, it's 10 o'clock on a Monday, but who cares? You know, I'm just going to open a bottle of wine. One of the things that came up in a group chat conversation was, well, I drink alcohol-free wine or beer or whatever, but there isn't any good ones out there. I was like, actually, there, there kind of is. And the group of people which actually ended up becoming Mash Gang was on this this chat group we were sourcing beers it became a bit of an arms race alcohol free beers um it, it became yeah a silly arms race really and i was uh there was ridge sides nothing but the rain sadly ridge side have gone under recently which is a shame because i bloody love that beer i i remember sending some 2l and omnipolo and Michela stuff over to them and it was like wow this is really good and Naturally, when you have a group of people who are sort of self-starters and kind of running their own businesses, the natural question comes, how hard could it be to do this ourselves? And the answer is it was really hard. <laughs> um, yeah, but we ha- when you have all the hours in the world to do it, you just start doing it. And we just started doing it. Talk to me about the challenge. What, what do you have to do to capture that flavour? Right, so the first thing I'll say is I think that Whilst fermentation is the magic ingredient, ethanol almost always isn't. In 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 the history of British brewing, a lot of the best beers, and I'm you know I'm going out on a limb here, have always been on the lower end of stuff. And of course, like I'm interested too in double IPAs, triple IPAs. You know, I've been working at Verdon, and you know you watch what those guys do, and it's it's crazy. You know, I work at Vault City and Northern Monk, all places that have had very very high ABV beers. Recently, been working with Sean at Siren. You know, they make the Caribbean mm. chocolate cake. You know, these are hardly low yes. ABV products that we're messing <laughs> no. around with here. You know. Although, just to segue for a second, any brewer that is good at making imperial products, like, or double IPAs, triple IPAs, is naturally good at making NA beers. It's just the inverse of what they're doing. Like, it's not following the rules. But I would say a lot of my favorite British beers have always been low ABV, like Dark Mild, stuff from, like, Harvey's, you know, they're they're hardly exact. Colonel Table Beer. Like, as a oh, modern expression. Brilliant, brilliant beer. Um, Tail Crush by Burning Sky. Petite Saison by Burning Sky. Northern Monk's Striding Edge. Need I go on? It's just beer brewing. There's functionally no different than making a beer that's 3%, 6 or 8%. You just go in the other direction. So there's less sugars available. I know that there's loads of different ways to get there. Genetically modified yeast, selectively bred yeast, dealkoholization. All of those things are very interesting, but they weren't how we wanted to do it. We wanted a process that we could get together that would be replicable on any kit, from a small kit to a gigantic industrial beer kit so we've worked very hard to kind of get those controls in in place and it is risky it doesn't always work you get runaway brews a lot more than you'd like to 
but hearteningly when i've spoken to much bigger breweries that do similar stuff to us they get the same thing as well we still get things like hop creep and and um over attenuation and my nemesis is brett which gets into everything yeah because <laughs> the biggest challenge with low alcohol beers is the lack of ethanol means they're particularly vulnerable. So we have to make highly survivable, safe beers. So what is the, major- the majority of your brews? What's the ABV that you are aiming oh, for? I generally aim for about 0.4% ABV and get there most of the time. The unpredictable ones are stouts where they, they a lot of the time they're under attenuate. We're never quite sure why it is. As time goes on, a lot of discussion we've had is it's to, we feel like it's to do with an endemic action of the hops, sort of a type of hop creep, but on a very, very small scale that wouldn't be noticeable on a full ABV brew. Cause remember, it's the point, you know, 0.04, 0.05. You know, if your brew was 4.1 or 4.2, you might not necessarily notice that, but we notice those, those movements quite a lot. We also find yep. that some hops are more likely to do it than others. Specifically, I recently found that Atanum, if, if I'm pronouncing it right, just it's absolute crazy amounts of hop group cascade <laughs> tends to do it to me as well but a lot of the new right. zealand hops certainly like nelson which we used quite a lot of never seems to do it but that's not everyone's experience there's so many different um contributing factors in every brew that i also think there's a little bit of mythology and a lot of kind of um we're kind of obsessed with with one detail we might be missing something else continuous improvement is something that's very hard to do in almost every business except brewing when it's continuous improvement in craft brewing is almost seen as the default um Mm. that's not to say that in larger scale brews consistency you know like when you're making something like timothy taylor's landlord it needs to be exactly the same every time someone gets it in craft beer people expect more i actually like the party phenomena is one of the most fascinating things i ever see because i would almost guarantee that it's identical every year but people's perception and memory is different so so i <laughs> yeah well their, their palates don't stay the same do they they no, change you, no, so that's um, always very interesting yeah it, because you know it's um your your perception is based on on what you're consuming at the time now it may be the, the fact that that half a decade ago putty was the only beer that you'd ever had that tasted like that you know but now you could have 20 or 30 similar beers that are like that and your memory for taste is very emotive you know the excitement and then that expectation that this will be the best thing you have and how can something live up to a uh an expectation that is almost impossible to, to match. So I think you set yourself up for disappointment, but that's kind of that's kind of what you sign up for when you're into craft beer. Is that? <laughs> but that the, the yes. flip side of that is nearly every brewer is not. They finish a brew and they have it and think, "Wow, what could I do better?" It's it's not a fulfilling <laughs> job, but. It's the way it is. But isn't that part of being a craftsperson? And that's what makes beer made in the way that you and others make Honestly, it a craft the, because it's hands the on. The time that you think you've got good at it is when you should quit. <laughs> that's the that's the <laughs> end. If if it if everything you brew doesn't make you think, oh, 
I could do this so much better if I just hadn't done that, you know, and I should do this in the future. Yes. The amount of times that my phone will ring in an average month and it's another head brewer saying, hey, do you remember when you did this and this? Did this happen? And you say, oh, yeah, it did, actually. You need to do this. Or, no, mm. what's happening? Well, this is happening. Okay. Mm. Right, okay. So there's all that tacit knowledge yeah. being shared, all that experiential stuff being shared among Literally you, the whole which time. is just to the... Yeah, which is just to the betterment of all brewing, isn't yeah. it? It was fascinating to hear you sort of being such a firm. I've mean, obviously seen all your collaborations coming oh, through. God, you mentioned Siren, you mentioned Vault City, you know, just a couple that I saw when I was buying some of your beer this week. So, yeah, it really is a live piece and very exciting to see you sort of really in the mix working with all these breweries and creating your beers that just happen to be low in alcohol. If you think it's good looking at it from the outside, you imagine when it's like doing it it's it's unreal that you you can just do that in in this industry what next for mash gang and what next for this um this wonderful mission that you're on oh man i'd I'd love to actually have a proper mission statement together at the moment one of the things that we're doing is we were exporting such a large amount of beer to the u.s that it only really makes sense now to just brew it there in the last six months we've been over there doing the fundamentals of getting the business set up and and starting to brew in chicago and milwaukee which obviously is not without its own challenges but it's very very fun um so we've been porting our beers over to there in the uk we've been for the first time ever really starting to focus on having a core range and you know i said it's like always continuous improvement and it's always having to move on the core range from continuous improvement to continuous stability reliability and consistency and it actually is fun it doesn't sound like it is but trying to make sure that our lager and pale ale that are on draft and in can are identical every run is probably going to be the biggest and less exciting sounding challenge but really is a good challenge to have that's what we're going to be working on this year really so it's great to see that the spirit of collaboration is strong with the brewers and that there's some really exciting names that jordan's working with you know he's mentioned siren northern monk and the sour brewer vault city you know mash gang are really blowing open many different styles of ultra low alcohol beer and Jordan's obvious enthusiasm there suggests that there are plenty of exciting beers still to come from Match Gang. Yeah, absolutely, Simon. The breadth of styles are certainly broadening. I've got here the Vault City Mash Gang Sour Collab. I mean, it all feels exciting. Certainly, some of those terrible no-alcohol beers of the 70s and 80s feel a very long way away now. Do you remember that one that Billy Connolly used to advertise? Calibre, I think it was. Uh, yeah, it, it particularly wasn't a favourite. I remember as well another one that I was uh, given after running in, in a race. Um, and uh, really, all that made me want to do was run away from from it even more, I think. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yeah, some of those um, German-style uh, low-alcohol beers, they make quite a lot of them, and they're often sold as isotonic, aren't they? So, yeah, after a race. Mind you, if you've ever tasted an isotonic drink, I think there's little to choose between um, one of those <laughs> and uh, which one you'd least like to drink. Now, a few weeks ago, Jump Ship opened Scotland's first zero-alcohol brewery. Founder and MD, Sonia Mitchell, first did a course in startup brewing in 2018 and after a year of trial 
And indeed, she said error in some cases. She launched her beers through contract brewing in December 2019. Obviously, not a great time to be launching a business with what followed in early 2020. But fast forward to now, and they have their own brewery. They're selling in the US and Finland. They've even taken legal action against one of the much bigger concerns that used the same name as one of their beers. Sonia told me what it was like just to be starting out five years ago. I think when I was starting out, there were quite a few people who didn't didn't take me seriously. Um, I was sort of a woman wandering around with a piece of paper with a recipe on saying, can you brew with me? And as I sort of have learned more now, I, I understand how hard work it is running a brewery and um, the scheduling side of it. And so when you're looking at contract clients to come in, you ideally want ones who are going to be stable and steady and, and not with an unproven recipe. So so I'm very thankful to those people who did take a chance on me. And I, I think probably what they saw that I was totally committed to getting this right and that I wasn't going to give up easily. And, you know, we, we spring forward now to where we are today. You've, you've opened the brewery, appropriately enough, um, opened in, in dry January. Uh, you've got several different uh, brews on the go. I mean, I've I've got a couple. Um, I, I think I've tried your lager. I've uh, I've particularly enjoyed Flying Colours, your your pale ale, and I think I've had the IPA as well. So there's there's quite a range there now. Yeah, yeah. So we've um, built out our core range to include um, a lager, an IPA, a pale ale, and a stout, um, just to show the the breadth of, of different styles. And now, um, particularly with our own brewery, I'm really excited about doing more in different styles. Um, we've started, um, we've done a few seasonal releases which have gone down really well. So we'll definitely be looking to do some kind of fruity sour again this summer. Um, there's a lot more I want to do with some more hop forward varieties. Um, excited to get more involved with British hops. Yeah, and looking at styles which haven't been done in, in alcohol-free yet and, and giving them a go. And do, do you find that now you've got your own brewery, are you still going to be able to sort of make the, the capacity? Because I, I guess if you're contract brewing, that there is perhaps potential for, I don't know, co- collaborating with someone else if, if you you know had, had two breweries that you were working with and now you're just back to, to, to one, your own place, and you're limited to that capacity. Do you worry that you, that you will outgrow it at any point? Um, not for a while. <laughs> um, so we've got we've got um, plenty of space for what we need this year. Um, we've got scope to put taller tanks in if we need the bigger volume um, to sort of double brew into one tank. So um, so we've got we've got some flexibility. I think. I mean, I think space is always at a premium. Um, but uh, previously, we've always had to ca- uh, brew the beer on one site and then package the beer on another site um, because we pasteurise all our beer, um, which um, being alcohol free is really the best way to preserve the shelf life of the beer. Um, and that's been really difficult because it's just not a process that, that many smaller breweries have in place. So um, we can be and we've ha- always had to build quite a lot of lead time into our production plans because we've got two different slots to book, both brewing and canning, and then allowing time between them. So um, now it's all under one roof. We can be a lot quicker and a lot more responsive to demand. Cask beer is would be amazing to take on in this style. Um, it's going to take quite a lot of development work 
to to make sure i mean you, if you think we, we, we we're less than 0.5 abv that's the tiniest tiniest amount of fermentation so there's really no wiggle room if if things go over but but yes to to, to be able to look at some of those techniques and try and um translate them to low alcohol would would be amazing and that's certainly something that we're going to be playing around with i think also because we you know we're planning to have a few events this year it's the kind of thing where we can experiment with with cask knowing that we're going to open it and then serve it straight away because it's it's obviously once the cask has been cask has been broached is that when the issue really comes into play for for no and low so it's very very difficult and i don't think we've got the answer just now but it's certainly something that we'd like to have a crack at because at the moment you're mainly selling in, in cans, aren't you? And, and there's there's obviously good reason from from the purposes of being able to distribute it that that cans is is the way forward for you. Yes, um, draft is is small, but it's growing, and we've certainly seen a lot more interest in the last twelve months than we've ever had before. So um, so we are looking at, at keg um, for this for this year. It is to be able to have a pint is is the ultimate, really. And I guess for, for pubs that are further afield that, that can't sell the draft beer, getting cans into their fridges where they might have a, a bottle of, of a low alcohol beer from one of the, the bigger names, perhaps, that, that you see everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I always, when I, when I go into to pubs, I always think your alcohol-free selection should match the quality of your taps. So if you've got some really nice craft draft beers then that's the customers you've got and they don't change just when they're not drinking so you should really have uh, a no and low offering which matches um, everything else you sell in your pub and and it it seems to be a a common mistake that a lot of venues are still making. And your name and your identity and and the whole kind of uh, shipping and and sailing sort of analogies that that you use within your your branding that that's very close to your heart isn't it? Yeah, very, very much so. It all, it all comes from from me and and my my love of sailing and and I guess it's it's a joy when you're starting your own business and developing a brand that you can put the things you love into it. And I, and also jump ship comes from the fact that I jumped ship into the unknown when I launched this, um, and I wanted something that was an invitation for other people to to not have that hesitation about trying an alcohol free beer, but to jump ship and see what happens. Um, and then from that, sort of a, a whole host of uh, sailing and nautical related names have come along. So each of our beer names has a connection with the sea and, and with sailing. So um, so Yardarm is um, the name of our lager and that's the, the mar- uh, a spar on the mast of a square rigger. When the sun was over that uh, spar, then sailors got their first tot of rum in the Navy in the olden days. And, and shore leave is, um, you know, what 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 sailors call their 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 leave when they get to go ashore from their boat and so for a summer beer to have that connection of stepping ashore relaxing it just all ties in really well it's a big step trying a a zero alcohol beer from um from a a regular alcohol beer to leaving a very presumably good and and well-paid job to starting something completely unknown that that's a much bigger jump of ship than just trying a different drink (laughs) yeah yeah it was and I still to this day can't quite say why I did it but it just became something that I had to do Sonia Mitchell from Jump Ship there and Selling Direct is a big part of her business too drydrinker.com is a retailer that specialises in low and low alcohol drinks and many of the beers and ciders you'll hear us talking about in this episode are sold by Dry Drinker including Jump Ships 
The range of low and notes available now might take you by surprise, especially if your local pub only stocks zero versions of the large macro brands that everyone's heard of. So I caught up with Stuart Elkington from Dry Drinker and asked him how he sees the sector at present. Very strongly, I started Dry Drinker kind of seven years ago, sort of part-time for two years and then five years uh, full-time. So I've kind of seen this massive explosion of no and no drinks over the past sort of seven years. And, uh, and actually, what's been really exciting for me is just the innovation that I've seen over those years. And every year we see something else coming into the market. So I think we're in a fantastically strong place at the moment. Are you able to give us any insights into, I guess, the growth that you've seen? So perhaps in terms of the growth of your business or the growth of, of the sector in general, perhaps in terms of, uh, you know, revenue being generated, etc.? Yeah, for the last couple of years, we've been doubling our turnover uh, sort of every year. I guess we were 18 months old when COVID hit and that was all about how can we deliver a new range of drinks to a, to a bigger audience and... Um, that was certainly an operational challenge, but I think through that period of time, a lot of people just actually found no and low and actually kind of fell in love with it then. So that really did help dry drinkers a business. And um, even through the you know the, the very tough year we had last year, uh, and certainly coming into this year, we've still grown 60% year on year. So we've set ourselves the next five years as a big challenge. And again, a big growth target for dry drinker for the next five years. I was interested in the concept of it being an all-year-round thing for people to drink no and low alcohol beers and other drinks. How has that changed in in recent years and how are you looking to perhaps capitalise on that in this year and beyond? Obviously, January is our kind of showpiece month, but certainly we've been really smart in in buying really well and, and something that we... We look at we looked at this early on, and, and, and again, it's a question we posed ourselves: How do we kind of take dry drinking out of January and put it across the other eleven months? And I think that's just about great seasonal drinks, but also just educating our kind of customer base and saying, do you know what? You could drink this then. This is a great particular beer, wine, spirit for this occasion, and actually putting them in the sense of how to enjoy no and no alcohol. So, you know, for the summer, uh, obviously sitting in the garden, extending your drinking time with now and there's been a super success through some great sparkling wine, some good kombucha and some fantastic lagers. So, you know, it's just about picking great products for each occasion. Which brewers would you say are leading the way in producing uh, no and low alcohol beers? Well, when I first started, uh, I, I remember uh, it, it, the only beers I could find to put on the website were German and Spanish. So actually, you know, the the first, I, I guess, uh, British beer that uh, that was available in the UK in 2016-17 was Big Drop. And then we've been very, very fortunate in launching most of the British brews out there. So what we try and do is kind of give people the confidence of, uh, of great products with some of the branded, as you say, names they know, but also introduce some of those smaller craft breweries that that are really producing high-quality, no-and-low beer. So I think we're, we're a great backer of British uh, brewers. So as you say, um, uh, Wiper and True, we've got the Howling Hops in there. We've got Beat Drop. Lucky Saints are obviously are leading the way with their um, uh, alcohol-free lager. We've got uh, Brew by Numbers in there, Mash Gang. So there's lots of great innovation within the UK craft market. Um, certainly in Scotland, we've now got some dedicated alcohol-free breweries 
and one being jump ship. Uh, and again, mm-hmm. they do a fantastic range from their Stoker Stout to their Yardal Lager. So I wouldn't if we pick one out, but I would say we've got such a great brewing heritage in the UK. We have a very broad brush of craft brewers doing some great stuff. And in terms of some of those more uh, traditional or, or heritage type of beers and bitters, so what products do you stock that might be of interest to some of our camera members and listeners? You know, I'm thinking around the alcohol-free versions of Ghost Ship or uh, maybe Old Speckle 10, etc. Yeah, the, the, there's actually, you're, you're absolutely right. Some of those traditional brewers have now, with the Old Speckled Hen, Doombar, again, another firm favourite, uh, all in a great 500ml bottle, so, you know, fantastic for home uh, drinking. There is actually uh, um, a brewery, uh, based in the north called DNA and they're, they've kind of created a Barnsley bitter so it's a nitro can and that reminds me of a great 3% session bitter it has that kind of toffee caramel drying sweetness all mixed up and it. it's a real mouthful it's fantastic my podcast co-host Alison is, is very passionate about cider in particular cider and perry so talk to us about some of the the ciders and perries that you stock cider is something that always surprises me because it's such a great drink that is uh, all year round so our most popular ciders that we sell are the kind of traditional ones that people will know like thatchers and sheppies we also do the uh, the wild way from adnams but also we've got some stuff from Stowford uh, and a really great uh, toffee apple cider from Brother Ciders and uh, the New Zealand Old Loot uh, cider with the, the berries and cherries. Can you talk to us about some of the, the different types of no and low alcohol beers that are around in terms of the ones that perhaps are vegan or, or, or gluten free and, and how much demand do you see for those types of beers? Great question. Yeah, it's something that we that I was really conscious of when starting the business, certainly being vegan and gluten-free, because there wasn't that much around at all when I started. And actually now, we're surprised if they are vegan or gluten-free. So again, the choice has exploded, certainly over the last two to three years. And that's really uh, down to jump ship. They kind of started the um, the now and low gluten-free vegan movement. And, uh, and again, it's probably... One of our top three questions asked about each product, is it gluten-free or is it vegan? It's good to hear from Stuart there that it's not just about the biggest brands in the industry, but that he's also a big supporter of the smaller specialists like Jump Ship, who we heard from earlier, and also Big Drop. Uh, they're in my part of the world, actually, so I'm very familiar with their, their zero beers. But while Dry Drinker is somewhere you can order direct for the beer to drink at home, Really, please don't forget your local pub in all of this too. In fact, we talked about dry January. I've read elsewhere some campaign groups are saying that this month should be pubuary instead of February. Yes, Claire, the pub is definitely a very important place for many reasons. For community, for connections, for conversations and for mental health. I was shocked to see that London has lost more pubs in the first six months of last year than anywhere else in England. And the rate they are closing in the UK as a whole is still far too many. Coupled with the fact that the business rate relief for the hospitality sector is set to finish at the end of March, I do wonder how some are going to manage. And I'm sure prices will have to rise again for many just in order to stay open. Now, sticking with pubs and on a happier note, it's pub awards time of the year again at Camera, of course, and there's been quite a few to tell you about. The first is that the Tamworth Tap has scooped the National Pub of the Year Award for 2023. And this is actually for the second year in a row. And it makes it only the second pub to ever do this. 
Meanwhile, Club of the Year award has also gone to the 2022 winner. So congratulations to Marden Village Club down in Kent on their 2023 award. Congratulations to both of them and did to all of those who've reached the final shortlists. And I've been interested to read about the pub saving awards too, particularly in the context of what Alison was saying there about how many pubs have, have been closing. These recognise people who formed a group to save a pub that would otherwise be demolished or, or closed. And the Save Our Sun committee have reopened the Rising Sun pub near Chepstow that was following a campaign that was started in 2013 after developers bought the pub and wanted to turn it over to residential use. Three other pubs and the campaigners who kept them open were highly commended. You can read all about these awards on the camera website. And talking of those pub-saving awards, well, perhaps we should rename... This section of the podcast where we say we're only here for the beer and call it We're Still Here for the Beer. And in keeping with that theme, Alison and I have chosen a saved pub to feature. So let's head to London first with Alison to find somewhere that was rescued recently and features a menu that covers both full, low and no alcohol drinks equally. I'm sitting in the very pleasant surroundings of the Lucky Saint pub. I'm in Devonshire Street, uh, which is close to Great Portland Street tube station. And this is a lovely old Victorian pub that has been restored and reopened on 2023. And as I look around, it looks like a classic London Victorian pub. We've got a lovely wooden floor, fireplace, comfy seats and a big old wooden bar. And on tap, I have some classic sort of cask beers we have the Timothy Taylor Landlord and the Tribute uh, Pale Ale um, but really what makes this pub special is the number and the variety of non-alcoholic drinks including Lucky Saint on tap and many other things which makes it a fantastic location for friends to come who are drinking and with others who are not drinking so it really is all about encouraging people to come out socialise, drink in the pub and those that are choosing to drink can do that with a great selection and those that are choosing not to can have the same experience. A really cracking little pub, highly recommended. Well, for my pub choice this episode, I've actually, by the magic of broadcasting, come to the pub itself. I'm at the Freston Boot, just outside Ipswich in Suffolk. And one of the reasons I've come here is partly because we've been talking about saved pubs. Well, this pub wasn't actually saved from closing. It was closed for a long, long time, um, over 10 years, and then restored and brought back to life in 2018, and it's been going ever since. But something else about this pub is that you can actually buy a pint of low or, or zero alcohol. You can't do that in many places around here. I'm delighted to say that uh, Daniel Davy, who's the general manager, is with me. Daniel, how important is it to you to be able to sell a pint of... It, it's, it's cake beer, but you've got a couple of, of yeah. zeros on here, haven't you? Yeah, no, I've got um, a lager. It's a nice Spanish lager straight from Barcelona called Freedom and Big Drop. The Ipswich Boys um, got their Paradiso on at the moment. As we're a destination pub, you have to sort of drive here. It's important to still be able to have that beer, that pint, with your friends and your colleagues. And do people um, come here because they want they want to look like they've got a pint when they're ordering the, the zeros, or, or is it is it just a changing attitude now? I mean, we've just had dry January, for example. Have you have you noticed changes um, in people's drinking habits during the last month? You always still get the people that go, oh, no, I want something with a bit more life to it. But a lot of people are a lot more willing to, especially once you try it. Um, so, for instance, with the Freedom, doing a blind taste testing between 
the other lagers I've got on, the amount of times that comes out top, or people are shocked that it is alcohol-free, is sort of testament to how good they're getting these days. Um, people are a lot more interested and willing to try these beers, especially when they're there with their group of friends, you know, rather than trying to hold a can, little can or a bottle of beer. Um, they can enjoy that with their friends. One of the things about the zero alcohol beers is that they don't have such a long shelf life. And I know of a lot of publicans who are very concerned about having to pour beer down the drain if it doesn't sell. Do, do you have that worry? When we first put it on, I did have that worry. The first uh, lager I got in was Freestar. And that was in a different format, so it never came in contact with the air, so it lasted longer than your standard kegs. And then Big Drop we actually use as our beer batter. The other advantage of Big Drop beers is they're gluten-free as well, so we're able to offer a beer battered gluten-free fish and chips, for instance. And that was the way that we kept the uh, throughput on the beer to make sure it was always cool and fresh. So you've got, as well as the the two on draft, you've also got a a cider and a couple of the more established, bigger-name brands uh, as well. Are are they important to have those ones that, that, for want of a better word, people have heard of? Yes. Um, So like in life, people need that familiarity at times. So um, we've got the Guinness alcohol-free on. That is just a phenomenal product, especially if you you start from the alcohol-free most people are barely able to tell the difference. Um, I've just started expanding the range as well, so um, I work quite closely with Navigate Brewery, um, and I've just got their Venture Zero in, which is just fantastic. So where I keep with Ghost Ship and that, or I'll phase out to just the Navigate, and we'll see how the crowd takes it on. So that was Daniel Davey talking to Claire there. And if you know of a saved pub that we might like to feature in future, just contact us at Pubs, Pints, People on social media and we'll do our best to try and pay it a visit when we're next out on our travels. Now, sadly, I didn't get the memo about visiting a saved pub, but instead the pub that I would like to give a shout out to, uh, having visited it in January, is the Craft Beer Co. on Leather Lane. This sits in the heart of London's Diamond District. Now, you could say it's a real gem of a pub. He's here all week. Hey, <laughs> it's the first pub in a, in a small chain you'll find uh, across London. But I walked in on a, on, a, on a late Saturday afternoon to a very warm and friendly welcome. The first beer I sampled was a half of the Victorian Mild, a collaboration between the Colonel and Redemption. And it took me back to last episode of the podcast where we focused on Milds. And it was a really, really nice beer. I gather that the Freston boot that you chose there, Claire, sells the low-alcohol crane cider from Cambridgeshire. Now, it's fantastic to see small, whole-juice local cider makers in a pub. And there are probably more low-and-no ciders out there than many realised. In fact, there's a strong heritage for lower-alcohol cider. In the past, people would create a drink called Ciderkin. This was naturally lower in alcohol and made in what we would think of now as a very ecological way. I thought we'd speak to a couple of people about this fascinating drink, as it's recently been having a small revival. I started by speaking to a cider historian, Elizabeth Pimlet. She's been with the Cider Museum in Herefordshire since 2016. The museum was established in 1981 and used to be the Bulmers plant. 
they actually set up the trust to um, try and get all the information and all the objects together in 1973. So 2023 was the 50th um, anniversary of its founding. So I came to it because I was interested in food history and as a result of that I've just got fascinated by cider history. It's very good timing actually because I'm looking at a lot of early texts at the moment and the problem with cider is that it often doesn't get the same sort of attention that something like beer or ale have had, both from scholars and even from people at, in, at, at the time. Um, so with Ciderkin, one of the earliest references you can come across is this slightly satirical author called John Taylor, who's writing in 1637, and he's talking about something called Pompikin, um, but he's quite derogatory about it. He actually says that it's something suitable for plebeians and rustics to drink. But in actual fact, the history of Ciderkin is very much tied up with the fact that cider was quite often a domestic product, and it was served to the family not just on the farms, but also on um, bigger estates. So I think we can be reasonably certain that when, wherever cider has been, there has been perikin. But it does definitely tail away in the 18th century. So I think its heyday is um, 16th and 17th, and then just going into the 18th century as well. So really, is, this is something that's tied up with that social history and heritage. So why would that have been so popular? What would it have been used for? I think it's a very economical drink and so if you've made your cider and you've got your pomace which you then can water down and do a second pressing, it's a very cheap drink, um, it's a very refreshing drink. You'll be serving it to your family, um, they also give it to the elderly, they give it to the sick and so it's not got the strength of a full juice pressed cider but it's got... Um, Really, it's still got very good medicinal qualities, really. We're thinking about all the vitamins that are in it still. But the only problem was it didn't keep very well so uh, because of the low ABV. So they did actually also try to make it last a bit longer by sometimes adding things like hops or raisins to make it more tasty. So it's, it's another string to their bow, I think, very much in the way that small beer is for um, beer makers. I mean, around this time, cider would have been a, itself, the full strength would have been a very important feature uh, of people, what people would be drinking. Yes. Uh, if you look at the Pomona, um, which was printed in 1664, there's actually a reference to Sir Harry Lingen liking the juice, um, the cider that's produced of Golden Elliots, I think they were called. Um, and it was so strong that it had to be drunk in small glasses. That's what um, Beale says in his letters. So I think we can't assume that anything that people were drinking was low strength, apart from the cytokine, which we definitely know was low strength. There's quite a lot of different types of ways of making cider referenced in the 1600s, and some people added a bit of water, but most people didn't. And if it were added... Um, it was tended to really just to help the pressing a bit. So with Ciderkin, you would boil the water, so it would be quite a, a safe drink. And that's why they also gave it the other name of water cider. Yes, yeah, so I've, I've seen that in the, uh, in the definitions of Ciderkin. So they would boil up the water and then pass that water through the pomace and then the fermentation would begin. Did they have to help the fermentation along the way at any point? They did. There are references to them putting beer yeast in. Yeah, it depends very much on the maker, as, as it always does, really, as to how, how palatable it was. 
Absolutely. Well, I've just been thinking about the little Pomona uh, cider, uh, perikins rather, where they add hops and they really are very tasty, aren't they? And you get that sort of sour, sort of bitter kind of character, which is really, really interesting. So in terms of how this evolved then, how long would ciderkin be something that people would have been drinking on a day-to-day basis? It's a little bit difficult to track when it dies out completely because um, there aren't huge amounts of references. Um, and it's still being referenced in the 18th century. It's called Perkin there by Hale and Stafford. Um, and I think it really starts to decline the more tea becomes available. So it just gen- generally seems to fade out. Um, and then you get some people trying to resurrect it. So um, Godwin's, which was a firm, a Hereford firm that was taken over by Bulmers in 1960, they made a cidokin, but that was really a, a non-alcoholic apple um, concentrate, really. And Fred Bulmer, um, in 1937, did actually add water to a second pressing for the pub trade, which you could argue is actually cidokin. Interesting. So do you, is there any record of what the ABV, what the specific ABVs would have been of these cidokins and perikins or perkins that we're speaking about? In 1811, in Knights Pomona, he does look at specific gravity of um, certain juices. And so we can extrapolate a little bit about what the ABVs might have been. But no, nothing, nothing for cidokin, really. It's just described as a, a pleasant, watery drink at the time. Yeah, so I mean, in my head, I always imagined that it would be around sort of 1% or 2% ABV. Is that what you imagine it would be? Yeah, I was thinking possibly about 3%, something like that. One of the references says that you, you try to soak the pomace in as much water as um, it originally released as juice. So it's prob- it sounds like it's going to be 50-50 by the end of it, doesn't it, really? Any hints about what, what it tasted like or how people drank it or what sort of circumstances they drank it in? I know mean, you mentioned for the family. There's quite a nice reference um, in 1767 by John Mills. He wrote a book called the New- A New System of Practical Husbandry. And he talks about, to make an ordinary cider commonly called water cider or ciderkin, which is the usual drink of servants in cider counties instead of small beer. And he talks about boiling the water for this purpose. But he actually, in contrast to other um, authors, earlier authors, says actually the fermentation itself will make the water safe, which is quite an interesting point. So it's very much seen as a family, servants, labourers drink. Evelyn said that he was told that labourers prefer to work on small cider rather than small beer, which I thought was quite fun. I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> Maybe it was more refreshing to them. Could well be, yeah. And um, certainly more available in those areas, I guess. Really quite green as well when you think about it, isn't it? Making extra use of what you've got. It is proper recycling, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we are recycling to, to make this. Yeah, interesting. Is there anything else that we need to think about when we think about the history or the sort of heritage of cider kin and perikin or perkin, as it later became known? It wasn't just restricted to cider, so they were doing a similar thing with peri. And peri itself seems to have a... It changes a little bit because I think... I've, I've read quite a few references where it's not terribly highly prized, but then I think that changes in its history. But certainly in Worcestershire, in probably the 16th century, it was more of a worker's drink, which I think is quite strange, um, considering how, how much we value, value it now. 
Elizabeth Pimlet there from the Cider Museum. Now, I have tasted a couple of ciderkins lately and even a hopped perikin made by Herefordshire producer Little Pomona. I was very impressed by a ciderkin made by a fantastic Herefordshire cider maker, Artistraw. Lydia Crump and Tom Tibbetts, the owners and cider makers, work in an incredibly natural, hands-on way, really as cider makers have been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I had a chat with Tom about ciderkin and enjoying cider in sharing bottles. He started by telling me about his part of the world. We're about, well, one mile as the crow flies to the Welsh border. Indeed, yes, the River Wye is just over the hill. What a beautiful part of the world. We're all very envious of you. I expect it's very chilly at the moment there. And you were telling me that you've just recently finished pressing the apples from the last vintage. Yes, we finished pressing. It is very cold today. Perfect for cider. We finished pressing mid-December, and since then we've just been curating the various bubblings. Well, speaking of bubblings, we're obviously focusing in this episode on the lower and almost no alcohol side of things. And I happen to have been lucky enough to try some of your ciderkin made from Foxwell. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, we were inspired to make Cyderkin because it is actually an old drink. It's been made a lot in the past. And we chose Foxwelp apples really for two reasons. Firstly, they're early in the season, so we've still got lots of energy for mad experiments like making Cyderkins. But more importantly, they have incredible acidity, as you're probably aware. In the last vintage, we were getting 16 grams per litre of malic acid, which is about five times higher than most other apples. But this high residual acid in the pomace, along with a light pressing to leave some sugar, means that when you do soak the pomace in the water to get a second extraction, what you extract after 24 hours of maceration is a juice with relatively high acidity and reasonable sugar. And because we don't like to add sulfites, it's the acidity we think is helping us keep the cytokines relatively clean. And of course, it brings a lot of flavour certainly does. I was astonished by how flavoursome that was. And what was the alcohol by volume on that final bottle? Remind me, Tom. I think on that one, it was about four. But typically, our cyderkins end up between about three and, and four percent. It depends on two things. Firstly, the amount of sugar in the apples that year anyway from the season. And the second thing is how hard we press them in the first pressing. If we press them really hard, you'll leave less sugar behind for the cyderkin press. But if you go slightly light on them, then there's a bit more sugar left over for a second extraction. Fantastic. So you have your pomace there, which is all that um, pressed apple that's left over after the first pressing, and you add water back into that pomace, and then obviously you do your second pressing, and that second pressing is what ends up being the ciderkin. Now, Tom, your cider isn't particularly high alcohol in any case, is it? What's the sort of highest you get to with your first press ciders and perries? On our dry ciders, we'll get to the kind of the seven and a half, eight percent mark that you can get on, you know, particularly sugary apples. So, yeah, typically five to five to six and a half, I'd say, that our kind of classic artist draw pet nap mediums come out at. Yes, that's right. And obviously with beer drinkers, they'll be thinking that's quite high. But for a wine drinker, that wouldn't be high, would it? It would be sort of half or less the amount. And the way that you package your beautiful bottles with the gorgeous labels that Lydia designs, really, they are more sort of equated to wine in many ways, aren't they? So they do actually offer a lower alcohol option for people who would normally perhaps drink wine. 
Absolutely. And in fact, that's how we consume cider ourselves. Uh, we drink it out of a wine glass. We have several glasses with a meal and the bottle goes a long way. And that is a really nice way of drinking cider or apple wine, depending on your viewpoint. Well, I, I must say I'm with you on that um, because that's how I enjoy drinking cider with a meal and sharing a bottle with my husband or perhaps keeping it over to the second day, sealing it tightly and popping it in the fridge. So, yeah, I think drinking natural ciders like yours as a bottle of wine is a really good option if you're looking for something to reduce the alcohol overall that you're taking in. That's exactly right. And the flavour diversity across well-made ciders and the apple varieties that are out there is just extraordinary. It's interesting that Tom's low alcohol cider cane is still 3 or 4%, although I suppose in the context of drinking it like a wine, that does really make sense. Earlier on in this episode, Alison and I were trying some zero alcohol beers, and Alison has been out on the tasting trail again. She caught up with Sam Wright. Now, he's a cider judge who helps Alison run the London Cider Club, and he also runs the London Cider Circle. So she began by asking him how he had selected the ciders that he'd brought along to try. Finding what was ready available on the supermarket That's shelf, really. Absolutely yeah. the way forward. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so various, various supermarkets. Absolutely. So we've got uh, some supermarket available ones, and we've also got some ones that I'm um, that I've brought along that I found for the trade. Yes. So we've got a bit of a mix here. So the first one we have in our glasses is from a cidery that calls itself Flyer, and the cider is called Maiden Mill at Somerset Cider Press, and this is a cloudy medium dry cider. How does it look, Sam? It's looking interesting for now alcohol cider very sort of hay colored and yeah nice haze to it yeah. which makes it look a bit more interesting than some of the others line up so yeah so this says it's from Evercreech in somerset and 0.5 so on the nose definitely fresh fresh apple juice yeah it smells like yeah it's pleasant on the nose it's um it's a slight zing that you're expecting mm. yeah it has actually got a nice satisfying mouthfeel this one yeah a nice full body Definitely. Yeah, there's immediate pop and then dissipates somewhat. It's, um, mm. Yeah, carries through pleasantly. Yeah. yeah, not bad at all. I like the sort of weight of it and I like the very apple-y flavour, sort of almost like dessert apple flavour, even though yeah. it's a Somerset cider. So I'm guessing this is a cider apple cider, but it certainly has that lovely dessert apple flavour, doesn't it? So, yeah, the nose continues well into the mouth. Yeah, it's, um, I, yeah, at first we're not out of the traps. I think um, it's a pretty strong start, i say. So the second one is a Crafty Nectar 0.5 from um, the online retailer Crafty Nectar. Uh, they're not specific about where this is made, but it is described as a West Country uh, style. So I'm just Fine. pouring this for us. Yep. Oh, immediately, Sam, it's a different <laughs> appearance, isn't it? Yeah, that's um, playing up a bit more. That's... Yeah, so plenty of yeah. carbonation on this yes. one. Nice little bubbles, and it's a lovely clear colour. Yeah. Uh, sort of very pale gold, perhaps. Clear pale, yeah. On the nose? Ooh, that's um, that's striking already, isn't it? Mm. Strong. Yeah, it definitely smells Sweetness. like a cider. Yeah. Mmm. Ooh, elegant. Yeah, that's not what I was expecting from that nose. It's um, yeah, delicate, elegant. Mm. It's um, got a nice perfume to it. Yeah. It really does have that sort of blossom character. Yeah. That's very. Juicy, mouth-watering. I'm yeah. getting like a mouth-watering sensation. I was expecting big things from this one, so mm. it's nice to see that's delivered. Mm. Yeah. Despite the lack of alcohol, this is 0.5%. Mm. You don't seem to miss out on that too much. There is some sort of body there that and warmth just about. 
Yeah, and, and they carry on. Um, often one of the challenges with the low and no uh, drinks is having a sort of a, a bit of length, and they both actually do that. But that one in particular, that uh, crafty nectar does that very, very well. Yeah, good job. So we'll move on now to our third of the ciders. This is another one that um, I've brought along and very much uh, available in the trade as well as for retail. This one is from a Normandy cidery, Sassy, the yes. Maison Sassy, and they make some... Fantastic lower alcohol ciders um, and pear ciders. They make a, a rosé cider and a, a poire, yep. a poire pear cider that are at 3% and 25 respectively. So they work well yep. yeah, for the low. But this is their 0.0. .0. So this is, a, is absolutely no alcohol. It's a much richer golden colour. Yeah, the gold's coming through there. It's slightly darker than the last one. There's a nice carbonation to it. It's holding up. Yeah, it's kind of rich apples. Yeah, it's definitely a different characteristic that, that if that's going straight off the Normandy sort of style, it's um, tapping into, yeah. Yeah, and we have to assume that um, they're keeping in, in keeping with their style of cider. There's a sweetness, and there is certainly a sweetness there. But it's quite rich, quite full, yeah. quite a nice tight bubble on, in the mouth. Yeah. Almost toffee apple in sort of its nature, yeah. Yeah, and, and that does sort of echo uh, the, the keeved style that you get from Normandy cider, which is that style where you're holding back the fermentation and you're yeah. getting that sort of apple sweetness. And as you say, it's almost like tart tatan-like yeah. character. The sweetness does come through slightly heavier on this one. You can sort of feel it on your teeth a little bit more. It's sort yeah. of a bit more viscous and sticky, isn't it? I think that's fair. But actually, it's very pleasant. Mm. I'm, I'm enjoying that. It's got a nice... And again, it's got some length on it as well, which, yeah. is, which is good. Yeah, very nice. Okay, next we've got the supermarket ciders. Which supermarket did you find these in, Sam? A mix of Sainsbury's, Tesco's, Waitrose, and whatever I was around that day, I think. <laughs> so, brilliant. so you've done a really good job here. Yeah. And the first one we've got is Thatcher Zero, which is a Somerset cider, as you would expect, with Thatcher's and 0, 0.0, so alcohol-free yep. Seems completely. to be in all the supermarkets, so... Yep. I guess that's to avoid people who are concerned about that yeah. point five. Oh, goodness. Okay, so lovely, deepish gold that's colour. Clean, it's encouraging. Yeah. Oh, very oh. different aroma. Yeah. What does that smell like? Pear drops? Yeah, it's pear drops. Nail varnish remover. That's it. That's what's coming through, isn't it? <laughs> that's There's a slight artificial nature Really it, strong, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yep, taste of pear drops too. It does, yeah. That's... um. It's the sweetest I think we've had so far. That's... Certainly quite challenging after a couple of mouthfuls. It's, um, it does stick, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, that's quite... Um, yeah, that's fairly high in sugar, I would say. And <laughs> um, and it, it really does taste like um, apple... I would say apple juice, only probably concentrated apple juice. Yeah, that's than, fair to say, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, no, that yeah, reminds me. It's not Capella, it's one below that. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't have a great deal of length either. It disappears fairly swiftly. Let's quickly move on to the next one from our friends at Westerns in Herefordshire. Yep. And this is their Stouffer Press Low Alcohol. Yeah, nice carbonation. Same character as the last one. Yep, so perfectly clear and clean. Yeah. Fast carbonation. On the nose, Ooh. Slightly getting, musty. Slightly musty. I'm not getting a lot from it, to be honest. No, it's not terribly strong, but I do get a sort of dusty. It's not particularly unpleasant. It just has a yeah. slightly dusty sort of uh, aroma. Hmm. Quite hard to think of a tasting note for that. Yeah. I get a bit of carbonation. I'm getting a bit of carbonic acid. So there's a bit of acidity it's from that. It's interesting because you can tell that it's pretty heavy on the sugar, but it actually feels quite dilute at the same time. It's, um, I think it's quite high on the sugar, but I think it's probably quite high on acidity too. Mm. So it kind of smooths it out. Yes, um, yeah. Probably necessary for that. Um, the length is fairly short, I would say. As 
battle between two similars go. I think this has the edge over the zero. It's, mm. um, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't give you that sort of furry feeling. <laughs> the furry feeling of sugar. Yes, I understand what you mean. Absolutely. Okay, we move on to the next two um, ciders you managed to get in the supermarket. What do you have here? So we have Sheppies here of Somerset. This is a 0.5% low alcohol classic cider. Right. Anything else that we can learn on that? Let's have a look. Well, it's got quite a lot of information on the back, to be fair. Yeah, there is. Um, oh, and a list of ingredients. Which is always encouraging. Uh, water, yes. apple juice, Somerset cider is third place there. Yeah. Um, sugar. Sugar. It's got malic acid re- added back in. Carbon dioxide. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so... Very open, transparent about the uh, ingredients there. Very pale, this one. Very pale. Yeah, sort of almost like white wine kind of looking. Can't see the carbonation. Oh, yes, it's there when I shake it. It's got a light, fine carbonation. On the nose, gosh, very, very gentle, slightly lemony. Mm. Yeah, not over the top, though. No, lightly lemony. Mm. Okay, much fizzier on the palate than it looks. Carbonation's frothing nicely. um, That's fairly pleasant. It's, um, it's not hitting you around the face. I'm not sure how classic cider that is, but... I'd say it's very dessert apple-y yeah. sort of... Um, again, the sweetness is high, mm. and the acidity is high. It's making my mouth water quite a lot, but it has got a kind of nice lip-smacking quality about They're it. evoking sort of some of the alcoholic sort of flavours you might get. It sort of reminds me of a scolly or something like that, maybe, mm. single mm. variety. Yeah, the, the South African mm. uh, scolly, yeah, absolutely. And then the last one you've brought along... Is in a little dumpy bottle. Yeah. Looks like a French. Very fancy Galapet non-alc, zero uh, percent. Comes in lovely little three thirty mil bottles, and it's Jus de Pomme Petalon, so fizzy apple juice or slightly oh, fizzy. Oh, okay. Juice. So Galapet are a um, French cider maker. I think using the same sort of Normandy styles. Uh, Normandy. I can't remember. If it's Normandy or, Bre- or Brittany, but um, yeah. So definitely northern France. Yeah. Um, ingredients wise, yeah, just. Apple juice. Just apple juice. And we yep. basically have sparkling apple juice made by cider company and marketed as a sort of low alcohol cider. A hazy bronze colour. Yeah, it's sitting in the no alcohol cider section. Yeah. Yes. Yep, so definitely. It's, it's quite hazy. It is a lovely sort of oh. deep sort of umber colour. Yeah. That's on the nose. Plenty. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, this is really honeyed yeah. and like really overripe apples and yeah. honey. Definitely. Mm. Oh wow, that that's full of pudding fruit, isn't it? It's that like pure honey tart tartan or honey cake or something like yes. that. Yes, um, yeah, it wouldn't be a miss day after Christmas Day or something. Like that. <laughs> it's quite pleasant, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's fully rich, sweet, vibrant, rich. Yeah, yeah, that's a good for sort of the end of the meal or with a pudding or something like Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. So, what came out on top as your favourites there, Alison? Well, fortunately, Sam and I both agreed. And we agreed that there was something really for everyone there in that selection. But we picked the same one as our favourite. And that was the Crafty Nectar. I also particularly enjoyed the Sassy from Normandy. And I'd like to give an honourable mention to the Maiden Mill from Somerset as well. Hang on a minute. I'm I'm writing all these down so that I can try and find (laughs) them somewhere. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Earlier, we heard from Sonia Mitchell from Jump Ship Brewery. And she was talking about how they hope to work towards a cask version of some of their beers. And although she said it might be some way off, she believes it is possible. So could we at some point see a low and no category in Camera's flagship competition, the Champion Beer of Britain, or CBOB as it's known? That's a question I put to the CBOB Chief Judge, Christine Krein. I think that's down to Laura Emson, who's in charge of the awards. Uh, 
Uh, is it, it's going to be difficult because the way in which we judge, we judge at beer festivals and making sure that the beer with a low and no alcohol content, uh, is, uh, is in good condition. We, Cause we tend to do the draft competition, which is really what the Champion Beer Britain is mainly about. And that's going to be difficult for people to keep much easier. If you do bottle beers, uh, but there again, most of the bottle beers with low and no alcohol are not cask and not bottle condition. They're uh, they're actually cut their keg beers because of the keeping qualities. A lot of them are micro filtered or pasteurized because when you end up with that low alcohol content, it's very difficult for a beer to keep. So they need to be drunk fresh. Makes competition difficult. Is it impossible? No, but it depends, I suppose, on where you draw the line. If you did a competition of about 3% beers, yeah, you could easily do it. But if you went much below about 2.5, you'd really quite struggle. Perhaps there is room, though, for a category, as you have all those categories that say strong, and I think there's at least four categories currently that say strong in, in their category name. Could there be a lower category, perhaps? I mean, we do have the mild categories, of course, which is uh, up, uh, which is up to and including four percent. But I don't disagree. When we were running, when I was running the London Drink and Beer Festival, we had a champion lower uh, beer of London, but we included both keg and and cask to to get the numbers up because there aren't that many that are regularly brewed. Uh, but we we ran a competition like that for a couple of years, trying to promote and encourage people to think about the whole range of different beers. So you're right, there is there is always an opportunity to be creative and think things differently. And, and low and no alcohol seems to be one of the, the faster growing sections at the moment. It would be good to, to bring them into the fold, perhaps. Yeah, well, I do uh, the International Beer Challenge and also the World Beer Awards, and both of those have low and no alcohol categories from beers from all around the world, but they are either bottled or canned uh, because of the keeping quality is far better. If you think about the efforts to ship beer, particularly if it's cask, around from one end of the country to another and making sure a beer of that low strength is is in good condition when it actually arrives to be served that is a big challenge but bottled beers yeah bottles and cans and let's be honest we're we're more and more breweries are moving towards cans and of course we there is can conditioned beer i mean more brewery down in bristol was the leader in that and we are finding a few more and i wouldn't be surprised in due course if flora decides to include canned beer as part of the competition and that would wi- widen the opportunity i think for lower alcohol beers coming in that's certainly the the case you see so many beers that used to be in bottles now in in cans and and it's a, a cost thing i'm sure and and easier as you say to transport um than, than bottles so yeah it's lighter but also too it has the the ability that it doesn't uh, it doesn't suffer from any any contamination with light um, if you leave a beer in sunlight for example you can get something called light struck even if it's in a dark bottle so the keeping qualities of cans are gen- generally better and so that's just about it from us this month our next episode will be the first in an exciting new series of features about the main ingredients of beer, where we'll be putting the spotlight on hops. But before we go, it's just time to call last orders and pick out our favourite beer or cider that we've been enjoying this month. Now remember, do get in touch and let us know your favourite low or no alcohol beer or cider, especially if you know of any from smaller producers in your part of the country. You can find us on social media at Pubs, Pints, People, or you can email us at podcast at camera.org.uk 
Now, I've changed my mind so many times as I've been trying all these different um, low and no beers this month, and it's all just getting so good. We've talked about some of the specialists in the sector this episode, but actually I'm choosing a local brewery's no version of, of one of their brands. Uh, Nethergate are based in Suffolk. Uh, I drove past their, their new or newish brewery just, just the other week, in fact. But they've, they've got a beer called Venture, and they've got Venture 0.5 in a number of Suffolk pubs locally to me. Daniel at the Freston Boot, in fact, actually introduced it to me while I was there. It's really good. I really like the taste of it. I'll certainly be making it a regular choice when I want a zero-alcohol beer from now on. Brilliant. That sounds a good one. I've been getting into the Mash Gang beers and I'm still really enjoying the Clearhead from Bristol Beer Factory. But right now I have in front of me a bottle of High Sobriety. This is a low alcohol cider sitting at 1% from Hogan's. Uh, We had Hogan's come and join us at the London Cider Club session recently and I was reminded again just how good their wider range of ciders are. Uh, Simon, I think you've got a bottle of this that I gave you, haven't you? I have just opened this as as you were chatting Ah. away there and pouring it into my glass. It looks like a cider. It really smells like a cider and I'm just about to Mm. taste it now. So I think this one's really juicy and really, really working well with that 1% alcohol. Ooh, Very clever. I really like that. There's quite a yeah, meth watering. quite a dry finish, I think, to it, but really, yeah. really tastes really tastes like a cider. I'm seriously yeah, impressed they've been with clever. this. Yeah, really good. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely, Simon. Thanks to Hogan's for sending us that. It's really good. I'm I'm really disappointed that the can of Jump Ship that I managed to find in a, a shop local to me, amazingly actually, and uh, I'd already drunk it. So I, I I can't even rattle the empty can at you, I'm afraid. <laughs> And before we finish, I just wanted to give a shout out to some of the lower alcohol beers as well. I'm sure we've all enjoyed a brew around or lower than 3%. So many of the miles we featured, as Simon said in the last episode, are definitely in this category. Glorious, full of flavour and distinctly low. Plus, I have a massive soft spot for the Colonel Table Beer, which always sits around 3%. One of their ever-changing tasty brews, but I think it really broke new ground in the craft beer scene and it's still a cracker. Now, the beer I'd like to mention this month is one that was uh, sent to me by Dry Drinker when I was doing the interview with them, and it's another mash gang beer called Cold Coast. This is a crisp Pilsner, double dry hopped with Pacific Northwestern hops. It really was noticeably hoppy with a really good depth of body, and it's one that I would have no hesitation in buying and drinking again. So as we raise our glass of zero alcohol beer and cider to you, and it's just as well because we're recording this quite early in the morning, thank you for listening. Thank you as ever to our volunteer team behind the scenes who work so hard to make this podcast happen. And all it remains to say from us is cheers. Cheers. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 's a free case of beer sound yes you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at beer 52 by going to www 
beer52.com forward slash people. That's the numbers 52 in the 52. And covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95. And what's more, as a special offer for our listeners, they'll throw in two extra beers for free. So that's 10 unique craft beers. Beer 52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month, they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world. And this month, it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent. So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Derges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia, Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others. And if dark beer's not your thing, you can choose the light-only case. Also included is the ever-insightful Ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time. So head over to www.beer52, that's the numbers 5 and 2, dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of 10 beers now.